This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Friday show. We made it to Friday. That's a blessing. We got a whole weekend on the program, and I'm really grateful that you have tuned in today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Now, if you are driving in your car, um, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I really like Fridays because Friday we have Old Testament study or I'm sorry, New Testament Bible study on Friday nights. Uh, I'm going to be teaching Ephesians um, chapter 6 I think verses 5 through 9. We're talking about slaves and masters but really the application for us is employees and employers um, but also some really good family stuff. So that's tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, I will be teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on Sunday. Um, I hope that is uh, something you're interested in. Um, we'll be here for all three services on Sunday. Let me get to our first question while we wait your phone calls. This first one comes from our email inbox from Scott. He says, the Old Testament refers to the holy mountain, like in the Psalms, and then he quotes Psalm 99, verse 9, where it says, worship him at his holy mountain. Where is this mountain actually located? Is it where Jerusalem resides today? Uh, Scott, a couple of things. Uh, I think the better translation on this, rather than holy mountain, is on his holy hill. And, And remember, in the Old Testament, the idea that Jerusalem was the holy hill or the place uh, where Solomon's temple would be built. And I think this is a general reference to that. Any place you worship God has to be that holy hill because Jerusalem is raised above other places, then obviously it would be uh, referred to as hill. You're always going up to Jerusalem or coming down when you're leaving from Jerusalem. So this isn't a mountain as much as it was a hill. And by the way, on this holy hill, it was the place where Jesus was crucified. It's also the place where Solomon's temple would later be built. Um, so so clearly, uh, this is uh, a reference to the place of worship. Um, Jews must worship in Jerusalem. 
the Samaritan woman at the well um, rightly said. And um, Jesus was very gracious with her. So, Scott, good question. Thank you very, very much. Here are three questions that we have from new believers. He says, the first one, they say, what are your thoughts on Bible tracts? Are they effective or are they corny? Um, I'm not a fan of Bible tracts. Never have been uh, as a new believer. I thought they were kind of cheesy. Um, I was just asked this question in person by somebody the other day. There's a, a, a track where it's like a million dollar bill and it's it's sort of designed to, to get somebody's attention. But then then the real idea is a, a testimony for Jesus. I'm not big on, on Bible tracks at all. I just don't think they're effective. Um, I don't know that they're corny or not. Um, the, the tracks have been used from the very beginning. And I just I just think it's a mistake. I, I'm, I'm a big personal one-on-one evangelism guy. I think the way you, you share Jesus, you go talk to people, you let your light shine. And, and I just think the Bible tracks um, really don't do anything at all. To open a heart. So I, I don't know. I'm sure somebody somewhere has found a track and the Holy Spirit had been working on him or on her and they read that track and, and the Holy Spirit convinced. But I, I just don't think it's an effective way to share. So I hope that answers your question. The second question from new believers is this one. Do you believe it's possible to forgive a spouse for infidelity and still divorce them? Is this really forgiveness? Doesn't Jesus say that if we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us? Um, yeah, it is possible to forgive a spouse for infidelity and divorce them. Uh, those things are not um, inconsistent one with the other. I think uh, when a marriage covenant is broken and the, the word of God allows for divorce, I think what that does is give the choice to the victim about what he or she is going to do. And it has nothing to do with forgiveness. I know uh, cases where marriage infidelity has been forgiven and people remain friends and they, they, they certainly raise children together, uh, but they're not going to get remarried. So uh, I think sometimes we, we look for uh, a way to escape consequences. Um, but yes, it is possible to forgive someone for cheating on you and then still decide that divorce is the best thing. You know, one of the things I'm going to be talking about divorce a little bit uh, and marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, not this Sunday, but the following Sunday and, and beyond. Uh, I think one of the things that we forget sometimes is that God knows the future. And there are times when God knows whether our repentance is genuine or not. And I think there are times when he will say to the victim of infidelity, I want you to stay with your husband or your wife. And then the next time he would say, I, I, it's okay to leave. Uh, God knows our hearts and we don't know them. So I think it is um, not only possible to forgive a spouse for infidelity. I think it's something that we need to do. But that doesn't mean that we have to trust them again. It doesn't mean that without at least earning our trust and knowing that there has been a, a transformation in their lives. I, I don't think it, it means that we can't divorce them as a result. One of the things I always tell people is God hates divorce. That's true. But when the word of God, the law in the Old Testament or the gospels in the New Testament, when the word of God gives us freedom to make a choice, then we who are observers of the choices that are made, we have no right to take away that freedom. 
And you know, the only people I ever hear that are talking like this are those who are the um, the guilty spouses. It's like, okay, well, I'm sorry. Shouldn't she forgive me or shouldn't he forgive me? And I think sometimes it's an indication that a heart isn't really ready to accept the consequences of the sins that we've made. So I hope that answers your question. And then the last question from the unbelievers group is this one. I see in the Bible where the gift of tongues is used to speak a known language. Can you show me where it's spoken as a secret language between man and God? Um, I don't like the use of the word secret in that question. It's not a secret language. It's just language that's not understood. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 we're given sort of the parameters of the gift of tongues. When you see in Acts chapter 2 the Holy Spirit being poured out and people speaking in an unknown language and being understood by people who don't uh, who, who are foreign to the language of the natural language of the speaker, that's a supernatural event. But remember, that's a sign gift, and the sign gifts are gone. Um, the Holy Spirit made one entrance into this world and started a church on the first day, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's not going to happen like that again. Much later, when Paul writes to the Corinthians about the gift of tongues, he's not talking about a, a, a known language. He's talking about a vertical, and that's better than secret. It's a vertical conversation between man and God. Paul says to the Corinthians that when a man speaks in tongues, he's not speaking to other men, he's speaking to God. So it's a vertical gift rather than a horizontal gift. And that is a language, um, and it, it, it doesn't have to be a known language at all. Uh, it's simply a prayer language. Now, for this particular new believer, um, I have the gift of tongues. I do not have the gift of interpretation. So when I'm praying in an unknown language, I have no idea what I'm saying. Now, there are some times when I feel like, and, and when I say feel like, that's very subjective. There's no way to, to gauge whether or not this is, is, is an accurate statement. But I feel like I'm praying for someone or a particular situation. Um, but, but most of the time, I don't know what I'm praying I do know I'm praying in the will of God because it's a prayer initiated by the Spirit of God. I know that if I'm praying in the will of God that God is going to answer my prayer. doesn't mean that I have to be aware of the answer. I just know that I'm praying in His perfect will. And that's not only a source of comfort, but it's also a source of confidence. There's just too many times in my own walk with the Lord where my heart gets so broken, I don't know what to pray. And I'll use my prayer language. There's times when God will put a burden on my heart for someone and I don't know what's going on in that person's life. And I'll use the gift of tongues for that. But that's just me talking to God. There's other times when I feel like the Lord is leading me to, to pray in tongues. And when I do, uh, I, I know it's for my own edification. That's what makes it the least of all of the gifts because it's it's vertical rather than horizontal. So... Uh, the answer to your question specifically is 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Read those passages and we're told exactly how the gift of tongues is to be governed in the church of Jesus Christ. Good questions. I love questions from new believers. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Ray calling from San Antonio on line one. Ray, good to hear from you. Well, thank you, Pastor Ron. 
hope you have a good weekend. Um, you had mentioned tongues and that you don't have a gift of tongues or interpretation. No. And uh, the the, uh, question that came to my mind was, well, are they uh, mutually exclusive? I mean, if somebody has the gift of tongues, do they automatically not have uh, the gift of interpretation? Or how does does that work? And and, uh, then that was kind of what crossed my mind all of a quick. I'm going to listen on the radio. Thanks, Ray. Good question. Um, No, the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation is not exclusive or mutually exclusive. You can't have one without the other. In fact, Paul says that when we have the gift of tongues, we should also pray that we can interpret. But remember, God gives gifts as he wills. Now, Ray, Paula uh, has demonstrated in the past the gift of interpretation uh, when we are doing a uh, an afterglow here uh, at the church. Um, I know that there are several people in the audience who have the gift of interpretation so that if there is a word that's spoken in, in tongues, then we'll be able to interpret it for the benefit or the edification of the whole body. So it's not, they're, they're not gifts that are mutually exclusive. It's just for whatever reason, uh, the Lord has not seen fit to give me the gift of interpretation and, and there are times that I ask for it. It's not something that I'm consumed with. And I'm fine by faith not knowing what I'm praying for, but knowing that I'm praying in the will of God. But the gift of interpretation is, uh, I think, a, a, a wonderful gift because basically in an afterglow setting like we do here at the church, Ray, um, it turns the gift of tongues into a, a, a gift of, of um, knowledge or a gift of wisdom. Uh, when the interpretation comes, then everybody is edified by it. So uh, I just don't happen to have that gift. Again, Paula does. Uh, I know um, um, a couple of my elders do. But but we've got people spread out through the body who do. One of the other things, Ray, that we, we, we usually find out in an afterglow setting is that God will give the gift of interpretation uh, as a new gift to people who are there who are asking God to give them gifts. And we've had a word in tongues that has been interpreted by somebody who was really surprised that they understood what was being said. And I'm not quite sure how the gift of interpretation works because I don't have it. But but the way it's been explained to me is somebody will say, well, well I just felt like I was hearing them in English knowing what they were saying. And that's just God sort of unscrambling things and giving them the gift. Thank you, Ray. Good question. Here is a question that was called in anonymously to our studio. Um, When a Christian dies, he becomes absent from the body and goes to the Lord. That's correct. But what happens to the non-Christian? Where do they go immediately? Um, uh, Anonymous, they go into uh, the Luke chapter 16. Um, they go into the abyss, they go into the compartment somewhere in the center of the earth. Uh, you can read about it. It's the story of Lazarus, uh, the beggar, uh, and the rich man. The rich man who uh, was uh, unkind and unfeeling and wanted nothing to do with God. He goes to a place of torment. There is a big gulch, and then on the other side of that gulch is a place called paradise. Now, when Jesus told that 
story, not a parable. He told that story in Luke chapter 16. Uh, the place in paradise was still occupied. But when Jesus went to the grave and he lowered into the lower parts of the earth, he preached a message of freedom and set the captives free. Now, the captives are those who were in Abraham's bosom or paradise. And while it was a wonderful place, it's certainly not heaven being with Jesus. But he went to that compartment and led those who were being held there uh, in his train to heaven. So they got a definite promotion. So what we've got now in that Luke chapter 16 abyss is we got one compartment that's empty and we have the other compartment that will remain full until um, the, the day that uh, Jesus, uh, the, the lake of fire is created after the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And then all of those who are in that abyss will be cast into the lake of fire where forever and ever there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Good question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. Steve asks this question. What is the best way to witness to a professing Christian who lives like an unbeliever? Stephen, I think the best way, of course, in love, but being very direct. I don't think you need to witness at all. They obviously, by by professing Christ, they know who he is. And believe me, they are really accountable to live a life that's consistent with their profession of faith. So what I do when somebody claims to be a Christian and I know they're living in willful sin, I'll just ask them very point blank, man, I care a lot about you. I want you to be in heaven. But what makes you think you're a Christian? I can show them Galatians 5. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God and their sins are on that list. And so I, 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 I want to hold them accountable. And, and often they'll say, well, well, you're judging me. No, I'm just saying this is the way you're living and here's what the Bible says. And the truth of the matter is, Stephen, no matter what they profess, they don't know the Bible. They don't know Jesus. You know, to, to walk with Jesus, the Apostle John says, because he is the light, we have to walk in the light. We can't walk in darkness. And the man or woman who continues to sin but says he knows God or loves God is a liar and the truth isn't in them. So I just ask them very directly and then I'll just leave it to the Holy Spirit to bug them. You know, you're not going to argue. I've had people say, no, I'm closer to Jesus than ever when they left their family for somebody else. Well, God wants me to be happy. That's not a Christian sentiment. What makes you think? And, and I'll just leave it like that. And I think being direct, um, being sure they understand that you're doing this out of love, you don't want them to, to, to stand before Jesus and hear him say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you doer of iniquity. I think you tell them the truth. And I have seen many, many times, Stephen, over the years, where people would get angry with me and months later, or sometimes years later, they'll come back and thank me for being so direct because the Holy Spirit finally grabbed the hold of their heart. It is a fearful thing. And, and I know we've gotten so casual about our whole, the holiness of God, about, about the fear of God. But it is a fearful, a terrifying thing to make a profession of faith in Christ and live like the devil. It's it's just something that ought to send 
shivers down our, our, our back and, 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 and ought to cause us to have terrors in the night. So that's the best way I know how, Stephen. I am as direct as I can possibly be. Good question. Ed says, Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah. Why did he say that and what did he mean? Uh, Ed, he asked his disciples the question. He said, and if you can hear it, in other words, if your heart is ready to receive it, John was Elijah. And the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that his disciples knew then that he was talking about John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus' first descent to earth. Elijah, the prophet, will be the forerunner. Literally, Elijah, the prophet, will be the forerunner of Jesus' second descent to earth in victory. So what he's saying is not that John the Baptist was Elijah. We know that's not true. There's no reincarnation, anything like that. But, but what he's saying is that, that um, John the Baptist held the same office as Elijah will in that day. Now, we know, Ed, that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses uh, in the book of Revelation, the, the two witnesses that, that will testify for the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Moses will be the other one. Moses representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. Jesus said in his earthly ministry that the law and the prophets testify of him. And that's what Moses and Elijah are going to be able to do. They're going to have fire coming from their mouth. They're going to be supernaturally engaged with their their, their enemies. And, and for three and a half years, they're going to be completely invincible. And then God is going to allow them to be killed. And for three days, he dragged through the streets, by the way, a, a, a horrible insult in a Middle Eastern nation. The bodies, and then suddenly the breath of life is going to come into them and they're going to be raised to life in front of the whole world. And that's when the worst part of the Great Tribulation then begins. So John had the same office as Elijah, and that's what Peter or what Jesus meant when he told his disciples. And John, if you can hear this, was Elijah. Good question. James has said, I think we're down about three minutes here. James said, Is there time in heaven? James, no, time, uh, heaven is timeless. Uh, we can't imagine what that's going to be. I know in the book of Revelation it says that there's going to be silence in heaven for about a half hour. And we think, well, if there's timelessness in heaven, how can it be for a half hour? Well, that's just the measurement. Remember, John was on the earth, and that was just the earthly measurement of the time of silence. Um, we also know that the Great Tribulation is going to be seven years long. And so when we are raptured to be with Jesus, the earth from the perspective of earth, from the time frame of earth, has seven years left. But for those of us who will be in heaven at the wedding supper of the Lamb, that seven years will be like seven minutes, maybe like seven seconds. It will go so quickly. So uh, it, it's just a completely different order of things. It's hard for us to understand. We who are held captive sort of by time and space limitations, uh, none of those limitations will exist in heaven at all. So 
Um, it's one of the great mysteries. We can't imagine what timelessness is like. But remember, James, that Jesus said um, that he is the I am. When Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? The answer, and it was Jesus in the bush. Tell him, I am sent you. Not I was or I will be, but I am. Everything in heaven is in the present. The eternal present, whatever that means, however that's going to feel, it will always be right now. And I love that. You know, on earth we go through seasons and, and uh, you know, we go through times that are really great, times when it, it, it gets harder, times when we're under attack. We, we go through those seasons of life. In heaven, there will only be one season. It's always now, and it's always going to be beautiful. It's always going to be bountiful. So, James, thank you for the question. That is a good one. Hey, we're getting ready to close out this half of the program. We'd love your live calls and questions at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, remember, we've got a a work day coming up on Sunday. Uh, go to church. Uh, minister to people. Ask the Lord to, to open your eyes to whatever divine appointments He has in store for you and be ready to answer the call. Whatever Jesus asks you to do, the answer is going to be yes. It'll change your life and maybe the lives of others. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. This is the word to stand up for life. The Friday show. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the final half hour of our Friday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question that was sent in from our mobile app or on our mobile app from Alan. He says, since there is billions of saints in heaven, how does anyone have a private one-on-one audience with Jesus? Alan, we, we've got to stop thinking in linear fashion when it comes to heaven. It is a whole new order of things. And Jesus will be with all of us everywhere. And while it doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't have to make sense to us. I think all we'll have is private one-on-ones with Jesus forever and ever and ever. I've always pictured, Alan, and, and, and this is, I'm certain, not accurate, but I've always pictured like Jesus sending out these these messages to our brains. And he says, just some, and I'm going to use time just because it makes sense to us, but there's no time in heaven. I just talked about that. But, but maybe a little bullet and say, you know, 10 o'clock. There's going to be a Bible study on, and he's going to have different things. And you get to choose which one you want to go to the Bible study, and Jesus will be teaching every one of us. I mean, the secrets of the universe are going to be open to us. Um, because we'll be like he is, and because we we have no sin nature, we'll be in perfect unity with Jesus. There, there won't be any rebellion. We won't have any questions about well, why did this happen or what. He's going to show us all of the answers to all 
all of the questions that we've ever asked. Tomorrow morning, uh, we are having a pastor's discipleship class here at Calvary Chapel. And and we're going to give people the opportunity to ask one question. Just one question. If they could answer one thing that Jesus they needed to know, what would the question be? And I think we're having a lot of fun with that. Um, but, but, but heaven, we're going to know the answers, and yet we're going to be blown away over and over and over. Imagine, Alan, for a moment, what it was like for uh, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, they'd walked with Jesus every day for now more than three years. They'd seen him do unbelievable things, miracles. They heard him say things so profound, things that nobody else had said anything even close to. And yet on that mountain, they saw him in a way they'd never seen him before. Alan, I think every day in heaven is going to be like that. Remember, when we're not constrained by time and space, there will be no limitations at all. We'll all have Jesus whenever we want, all the time. And I know that's not a very satisfactory answer because we, we can't imagine that. But one of the great things about heaven, that, you know, we, we always see heaven pictured as, you know, floating around on clouds with a harp in our hands and we're thinking boring worship forever and ever and ever. Believe me, heaven will be anything but boring. I can't wait. And the worse and worse things get in this world, the more and more pain that I'm exposed to, the, 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 the people that I love so deeply whose lives are affected with grief and loss, I'm, I'm beginning to feel a little bit like Jesus felt at the tomb of Lazarus. And with each passing bit of pain, Heaven gets nearer. And my innermost parts long to be with Jesus in heaven. Don't worry, that's not me being a downer or anything like that. It's simply, I want to be with the Lord and one day we're all going to experience that. Thank you, Ellen. Anthony asked, Pastor Ron, what's the most effective study method to learn the Bible? Uh, Anthony, it's different for different people. Now, I'm going to tell you in my own personal experience, and this is just the way I learn, it's repetition. I can't tell you how many times I've read the Bible. Um, I've read some books probably a hundred times. And you learn through repetition things that you can't learn any other way. I think too often we're in a hurry to, to read it, find out what it means, go to study Bible or go to commentaries or something and get somebody else's take on it. And honestly, Anthony, the, the, um, the, the thing we're, we're missing out on is that as we soak our hearts in the Word of God, the, the Spirit of God begins to bring light to that passage of Scripture. I'll give you an example. I've read the book of Hebrews, um, I don't know how many times, but, but many, 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 many times. And, and I am 100% convinced that the Apostle Paul is the author of Hebrews. 
And there's always people that like to argue, well, it doesn't say it's written by Paul and all of Paul's letters have his signature on them. And, and, and Paul had a different point. But here's the thing, after reading that book 30, 40, 50, 60 times, it's almost like Paul is whispering in your ear. You can't get that kind of, of, of certainty any other way. I can read what 50 commentators say. Well, I think it's Barnabas, or I think it's Apollos, or I think it's... And they fill in the blank. But the truth of the matter is, when you read it, it's the heart of Paul. And he's speaking in a different tone because his audience is different. His audience is Jewish converts to Christianity, an audience that Paul could certainly empathize with. But Paul is the power behind the letter. Power is, Paul is the heart behind the letter. And and I become convinced of that. Um, uh, the, the book of Philemon. It's a book that we ignore. Um, you can read that 50 times in, in, in a half a day. And the story begins to just sort of jump out at you. So for me, by far, the most effective study method is repetition. When Paul is reading to me, she'll read things over and over and over and over to me. Bless her heart. I must be the most boring man in the world. But believe me, it's just that washing my brain and my heart with it. And the Lord speaks to her heart. Now, there's all kinds of ways to learn. Inductive study Bible, observation, interpretation, application. Those are effective. I've utilized all those, but nothing has been as valuable, Anthony, as the repetition. Thank you for the question. Let's go to James calling from Belmont, Texas. James, good to hear from you. How you been? Well, I'm good. Um, been back in country now for, uh, I'm waiting on some chicken livers, so I'm going to roll my window up. Uh, Okay. <laughs> been back in country for about four weeks, but it looks like they needed me to go back, so I'm taking off actually tomorrow. And I had this question, and then, of course, I forgot it, which tells you about how important it was, I guess. Um, and so I didn't ask you um, a few weeks ago, but in Revelation 6.10, um, I understand the, the holiness of God, and, and I understand that uh, any imperfection in relationship is just as they say, filthy racks. It's a uh, God uh, uh, couldn't be in the presence of uh, of, of such uh, sin and so forth. Um, but in Revelation six ten, my understanding this is the saints that are calling out in a loud voice or shouting or crying out in that loud voice. How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge? the inhabitants of the earth, and avenge our blood. And so I guess my question is, um, I have a hard time imagining the saints. It doesn't, uh, I mean, I, I can see in regards to the holiness of God, but I don't understand if there's no concept of time, then I, uh, I'm not really sure why they're in such a hurry, and it just doesn't seem like an expression of love. Uh, can you yeah. just kind of tell me your thoughts about that? Yeah, I can, James. And, and God bless you. Be safe and 
and uh, we'll be praying for you while you're gone. And stay in touch when you can. You know what time we're on the air, so uh, let us know you're you're doing okay. I listen, uh, uh, James. All the time. This is good, man. Hey, uh, this this is uh, the, these are our brand new saints. Uh, if you look at verse nine, um, this is the beginning of the fifth seal. It's opening. Uh, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain or beheaded, another translation says, because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. In other words, these were people that got saved during the Great Tribulation. Uh, I've said many times on this program that when the Great Tribulation begins, it will be the greatest revival in the history of the world. Um, multiplied millions of people will be getting saved. The problem is that they're all going to lose their life. So these are people that they're not translated to heaven right away. They're under the altar of 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 God. Uh, this is John seeing this. So so they've not yet ascended into heaven, but they're waiting to be vindicated. And and just like the Old Testament saints, you know, when they're crying out without an understanding of of grace and 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 love that that we've been privileged to have in the New Testament, uh, they would they would ask for vindication. Uh, you know, David had some prayers that were were pretty brutal sounding. Well, these are 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 new saints, um, and and they they've got questions. Uh, they died. They suffered death. Um, their testimony had persevered. And when they're crying out, they're asking an honest question. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of, of the earth and avenge our blood? What they're saying is, look, we want to be with you too. And God has promised them um, that th- th- you're going to be with me. Um, they know that they're going to be rewarded for their stand by faith, for the perseverance. And then the very next verse, it says, each of them was given a white robe. That's the fine white linen of the saints. It's what we'll be wearing in heaven. And they were told to wait a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had had been completed. So uh, it's just a question they're answering. Okay, we stood for you. Uh, I know you're going to take care of us, but how long? And God is saying, you know, until... All of the people here, and that's going to be the end of the Great Tribulation, until all of the people who are going to come to Christ have. Uh, you just wait here with me under the altar a little while, and uh, we'll take care of you. So that's exactly what that's saying. And, and you're right, they wouldn't have an understanding of grace the way we understand grace. Uh, these are are people who resisted taking the mark of the beast. They knew it was going to cost them their life, and they did it anyway, and God is going to honor them. James, thank you for the question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question anonymously. I hear Christians rebuking the devil and binding the devil. I know that's not right, but how should I think about the devil? Um, Anonymous, a couple of things. Um, I think we make two basic errors in our theology regarding the devil. I think uh, far, 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 far too many um, people, believers and unbelievers, they reject the idea of a real devil altogether. It doesn't make sense. Oh, the devil's a boogeyman. Um, and, And I think that is a gross error to underestimate the power that the enemy has 
uh, power that is infinitely greater than ours is a huge mistake. This is the one who wants to rob, to kill, to steal, and destroy. Um, and and uh, so, so we need to think soberly about the devil. He is real, and he has power, and we can only fight in the power of God. So I think that's one of the extremes that we, we, um, we take at our own risk. I think the other one is there are real Christians who blame the devil for everything. You know, he's stronger than I am. I can't resist temptation. We blame the devil for giving us cancer. We blame the devil for giving us nightmares. We blame the devil for all kinds of things. And I, I think that's an error, too. I think we just have to walk in the balance between having a healthy fear of the devil, so much so that we stay close to Jesus, and then either disregarding him or giving him credit for everything. I think I think there's a healthy balance. And the way anonymous that I've navigated that balance is just by being with Jesus. I'm not afraid of the devil. I don't want to mess with him. I don't want him to mess with me. So I want to be so close to Jesus that when he's checking me out, um, the devil or his demons, when they're checking me out, I, I, I want to be able to just look at Jesus and say, you handle it. You handle it. So I think that's the way that we rightly think about the devil and understand who he is. I'm no match for him. He's no match for my Jesus. So I'm going to stay close to Jesus. This whole idea of binding the devil or rebuking the devil is nothing more than Christian arrogance, absolute Christian arrogance. We shout and we scream. Uh, I think of Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John uh, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And he comes down. They come down to an argument. And Jesus' disciples, the other nine, were arguing with the Jewish uh, religious leaders, those who were, were exorcists themselves, about why they couldn't cast out the demons out of a, out of a, a boy who was suffering terribly. His father had, had brought the boy for help. And the nine disciples of Jesus, although they had at previous occasions cast out demons, they couldn't do it this time. And Jesus rebuked them. Oh, you have little faith. What he's saying is, don't you know that you can't use yesterday's power for today's problem? And all they had to do was ask for the power in prayer, and no doubt they could have rebuked those demons, but they couldn't do it. So we have to be really careful. Even Michael the Archangel, we're told in the little book of Jude, even he doesn't bind the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. So, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Teresa asks, and this is a personal question for me, Pastor Ron, how do you comfort people as they near death? Um, Teresa, this is uh, such a difficult time. I think death makes us so uncomfortable um, that we don't like to talk about it. I've been at lots and lots of deathbeds and I've I've been with people when they just were given terminal life sentences uh, because of, a, of a, an illness they have. Um, and and I think most of the time they want to talk about it, but the rest of us around them, we don't. So we'd rather hug them and pat them on the back and tell them, no, it's going to be okay, you're going to be fine. We don't know that. So Teresa, that's my way of answering your question. What we should do to really comfort people is sit down and talk to them about what they want to talk about. 
I can tell you almost everybody who is given um, really bad news of a terminal illness wants to know why. Why me? We need to talk about that with them. We can't tell them God promised to heal them. But we can tell them that Jesus will be with them. Now, when it's somebody who's really hovering near death, uh, I like to read first chapter of Revelation, verses 10 through 18. I like to read to them the description of Jesus. I let them know that this is what's going to happen when they're really close to death, Teresa. I'll let them know what's going to happen when it's time for you to go. An angel will appear in the room. You'll be the only one who sees the angel. But when you see him, he'll extend his hand to you and the real you will step right out of that old tired body and instantly you'll be in the presence of the Lord. And when you do, and that's when I read the description of Jesus. And Teresa, I've seen people who were shaking with terror and see what the Holy Spirit does when I read that description of Jesus to him. It's an amazing gift. And so I talk to them about the things that they need to know. Some really want to know what's going to happen to me now. And I trust the Holy Spirit as the comforter. I'm not. I just talk to them about the things that they need to talk about. Teresa, one of the things I can tell you for sure is that we are not serving the people who are near death if we refuse to talk about death. It may make us feel better. We can convince ourselves. But the truth of the matter is they need to hear. And if God's put you in somebody's life, tell them what's going to happen. Let them know that you'll be with them until the angel takes them. Then you won't even, they won't even think about you again. Death is a victory. Peter calls dying and being with Jesus, the goal of our salvation. Now, let me flip this just a little bit, Teresa. The question you didn't ask is, what about people who aren't believers? And the answer to that is we never offer comfort to them. We never offer comfort to somebody who's dying and going to hell. We tell them about Jesus. We tell them about dying, Jesus dying for their sins. We tell them how eager God is to love them. And even if they don't want to hear, we tell them anyway. Because they only have until they take that last breath on this earth to make a decision to come to Jesus. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed that a man wants to die and then face the judgment. I remember one time Teresa being called by somebody in our church, somebody in their family had been in a really bad motorcycle accident and he was in ICU in really, really bad shape. And his whole family was Catholic except for the person from our church. And they were in the ICU room and everybody's crying and I walked in and they were a little uncomfortable because I was there. But I said, I said, first let me pray for you all. No, no, no. He's going to live. He's going to make it. You see, they're thinking I'm there to, to, to administer last rites. And, and I told him, no, I'm here to tell him about Jesus, the one who can save him. At the same time, you, in your time of need, you need to hear about Jesus. And they would have absolutely nothing to do with it. 
So the person that was in from our church just asked them if I could have a couple of minutes alone with the person in the hospital, and and I prayed for him. I just I I shared with him. He couldn't speak, uh, but who knows what he did? But but we just shared Jesus with him as he lay dying. So those are really important things. Never offer comfort to somebody who's going to spend eternity in hell. The idea that, well, you know, no more pain. At least they're out of pain. They're in a better place. We know, Christians, don't we, that that's simply not true. Okay, maybe we've got time for one more question. This is also an anonymous question. Why does it seem like suicide and mental illnesses are increasing so fast, especially among the younger generation? Anonymous, the answer is one word. They are hopeless. They are without hope. And without hope, nothing is working. All of the promises made to them in this world. Think about all the people that are convinced that they are gay or convinced that they are transgender. And they're miserable. They can't understand why they're miserable. And so they keep trying these radical things and nothing works. Now, it helps for a minute, but then then the same old guilt and condemnation comes crushing them without hope, real hope. And false hope is worse than no hope at all. There's no other answer, so they end their lives. And you are right. Suicide and mental illnesses are increasing at an unbelievable speed. Um, and the people doing it are getting younger and younger and younger and younger, and it's because we have failed. In the church, as a church, we have failed to adequately demonstrate the way of hope for them. And this is the way it's going to be. It's not going to get any better. The enemy wants to kill, and he's destroying everyone he can. He knows that his time is short, the devil's time is short, and he's angry, and he's trying to take as many people with him as possible. You know, the Bible says that we're going to judge the fallen angels, including Satan. We're going to point fingers and say, is this the one that caused all that trouble? That's a quotation from Isaiah. And every human being that the enemy can take out is one less human that will stand in judgment of Lucifer, the fallen angel, the devil. So our job, Anonymous, is to tell people about Jesus, give them hope. They don't want to talk about it, say, well, my life isn't the one without hope yours is. I have a source of joy, a source of peace and security in Jesus Christ, and you may not want to hear about it, but you're the one who's miserable and in pain. So in these last days, Anonymous, that's our message. Hey, have a great weekend at church. Find somebody that you can minister to. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Um, Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arb from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.